You're listening to the She Is Fierce podcast. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She Is Fierce, a global women's network that elevates women's stories and gives you the tools and connections you need to live on purpose. We support female leaders and business owners who are ready to level up in business and life and make their mark in the world. And we partner with and provide speakers and development programs for companies that believe in the power of supporting female leaders and women on the rise. On our podcast, you'll hear the inspiring stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who have overcome challenges and built purpose-filled lives. And you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at my mission-driven business and learn how to brand and grow your own. I'm talking with Cindy Funkhauser, the president and CEO of the Soulsbacher Center. The mission of the Soulsbacher Center is to empower homeless and at-risk women, children, and men through health, housing, and income services, thereby restoring hope and self-sufficiency. Cindy shared her story on our She Is Fear stage and inspired women in the audience, including me, to think about service differently. So first of all, Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. Great to see you again, Kelly. Happy to be here. You were at one point a female executive working in sales. You were a young mom, and then you transitioned into somebody who works in social care, who works in a space that is very different from where you started and very service oriented. So do you mind just recapping for everybody who's listening the the story of how you made your initial kind of life-changing thought process to get yourself from where you were to where you are today? It was really an epiphany that made me realize I needed to transition into a life of service as opposed to the career that I had, which was in sales and marketing for over 20 years. The epiphany really happened through a natural disaster. In 1992, I'm from DC. I had moved to South Florida to open a regional sales office for a national organization about six years before that. And so had lived in South Florida for a while. And in that year, if some people might remember this, was really the first big mega hurricane that hit the United States for it in a yep. long, long time. And that was Hurricane Andrew. And at that point in time, I had started doing some volunteer work through a church that we had recently joined because I became pregnant and realized, oh, we better get back to church because we're going to have a kid. And, <laughs> you know, that's sort you of the way that the same thing. <laughs> everybody, it's kind of how that works. It's just the way life, you know, transitions. But Social justice is, was always something that I was interested in. And so I had joined the social justice or social outreach ministry. And then Hurricane Andrew hit 30 miles south of where we lived, completely decimated South Miami and Kendall and Homestead. And so our church and many other churches at the time, within a couple of days, we jumped in our vans, we loaded up water and we headed down there. And so it was really through the work that I did there over the next six months with migrant farm workers and with people who had just 
their homes were decimated. I mean, there was nothing left. It was like an atomic bomb had gone off. But through that work, I really felt a calling because 175,000 people became homeless overnight. And I, I just felt this calling. I, I, I felt a calling that I needed to use whatever meager skills I had to help people who were becoming homeless because people could become homeless every day across the country. And it, it's just something that I really felt passionately about after that experience. I decided I needed to transition my life into a life of service, specifically around homeless people. I knew that was what God was calling me to do. And that's not always easy. Lots of people have called me through the years like, I'm in the for-profit world, but I really want to get into the nonprofit world. And it's, you know, it's not an overnight transition. It's not as easy as that sounds. I ended up going back to school, getting a master's degree in social work through Florida State. And then my husband and I, my husband got transferred then from South Florida to North Florida, Jacksonville, ended up interning at the I Am Soulsbacker Center for the Homeless. Over the last 20 years, it's been 20 years now, since I first interned there, I've worked there four times, left, came back, left, came back. And so I really feel like it's a calling because every time I've come back, they have called me and told me they needed me to come back. I never tried to come back on my own. So <laughs> I really feel like this is where I am meant to be. And so <clears throat> I've been on their board and I've worked there four times. I really feel like this is the place I am meant to make a difference in the world. And so that's how I transitioned from sales and marketing career to, to what I'm doing now. Well, can you share a little bit more about the Soulsbacher Center? I shared the mission, but can you share some of your incredible, I mean, really genuinely incredible wins, right? From a, a strategic perspective, but also really meaningful change that you're making in the community. Yes. So thank you for saying that. The Soulsbacher Center is actually the largest homeless provider in Northeast Florida. And we work in three areas because homelessness is a very complex issue. So we are a federally qualified healthcare center. So we're a federal clinic. We have five locations. We're not just doing medical. We're doing behavioral, dental, optical. We partner with Gateway and do substance abuse treatment on site. So it's a very comprehensive model of uh, care. So we have that on site and a lot of people don't realize it, but 60% of everything we do now is healthcare. Uh, we've really moved in that direction. It'll be three years in May that we developed a second huge campus for women and families called Soulsbacker Village. It's for women and families. There's 70 apartments. 56 short-term units. There's no shelter and there's no congregate shelter. Everybody has a dignified room of their own. It's a, it's, it is truly a village. And that is my proudest accomplishment, I will have to say. If we can swing it, then we need to do it. That's really, that's really how we approach things. There's so many philosophies that I love about what you're doing from a service perspective, but also even, you know, as you just said, having the, there's a lot of pieces to being able to say, I'm going to say yes, because it makes a difference, right? So not only is it the desire to, to do good, but it's also being willing to take a risk. 
It's also being willing to put more effort in. So having to show up yourself and do more work and having to ask other people to do more work. So there's a lot of pieces to having such a large scope and having to show up every day and, and having people that are depending on you. So I would love to talk more about the idea of a calling, if you don't mind, because that, that's something that you shared in your She is Fierce talk. And it's something that you've talked about today for yourself and people that, that work with you. And I am genuinely fascinated by this idea. And we, and I, I should have said this earlier, on this season of our podcast, we are talking about what we do all the time, which is elevating women's stories. But we're also specifically focusing on exploring what it means to live on purpose. So to take action, to, whether it is you know, in your personal life, as a mother, as a caregiver, or in your professional career, or of course, you know, shifting your entire career and going into service and doing that in a really dramatic fashion as you have done. So you are kind of the perfect example of that making a choice and in your words, having a calling to live on purpose. So do you mind sharing what that actually means to you and, and where that comes from? Yes, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to share it. It's kind of hard to put into words, but <clears throat> I'll explain how it happened, how the calling happened to me uh, initially. I mean, I mentioned that, you know, we started going down into the crisis area where people, 175,000 people became homeless. And seeing that and how it impacted people and the migrant farm workers, particularly who are already living in poverty, it changed my heart. I don't know, it made my heart softer towards that population. I started noticing homeless people and I grew up in DC and trust me, there is a ton of homeless people there. And I would peripherally notice them and think that was terrible and I wish somebody would do something. But after this experience in Homestead in South Florida, this literally happened. Homeless people would start coming up to me everywhere I went. They never did that before. Yeah. Just like they were drawn to me somehow. Can Thank you help you. me? What am I? I'm a marketing professional. Yeah. And I and I would notice them more often. And they would people would come. I mean, I would be with a crowd of people sometimes, and there would be a homeless person, and they would make like a beeline to me. It was the weirdest thing. And I knew God was telling me, wake up. I don't know, you know, how many ways I need to tell you this. This is the population you are meant to help. And so I really, really felt like that was like a very direct, very direct calling that I needed to do that. And then I just started, you know, doing that on my own, buying gift cards if I saw, you know, people and blah, blah. I started doing that before I ever even went back to school or anything like that. I just recognized it and knew at that point that that's, just really what I'm meant to do. That's really how the calling, my calling came to me. I think everybody has a burden that they maybe just haven't recognized yet, whether that's children in foster care, whether that's animals at the Humane Society, whether that's saving the planet, whatever it is. If you don't have a passion for something, then I kind of feel sorry for you. I mean, what you have to have a purpose in your life, right? And yes, your job, maybe that is your purpose. I, you know, for some people that may be their purpose, but outside of yourself, 
outside of what's good for you. You have to have a passion or at least an interest. It might start out as just an interest and then it becomes a passion. But I feel like everybody needs to help change the world however they can, whatever little way they can, utilizing the gifts that God gave you. And if you're religious or you're not, you have gifts, you were born with them, somehow you got them, use them. Use them to help the world. That's how I look at it. I love that, that philosophy. And I'm grateful to you for sharing because I think we have many women who listen to this podcast and who will hear your story and may think, well, I have something that I feel I could help with. Or I have something that I feel I wish I would help with, but it's, well, I know I could be of service, but I also have to X, Y, and Z. And I, I love exploring this idea of a calling because it is something that I think you frame really specifically as a calling. And really we've, I personally hear that consistently from um, many of our speakers, but framed differently, right? So they're, they're framing the idea of the calling differently. But I'm fascinated by that because you really talk about not just making a decision to say, I want to go do this thing because I know I can be of service, but actually feeling it and kind of having that burden on your heart, which is a different way of experiencing your choices to, to take action on purpose. So and I, I do think the reason my calling was so strong and so quick and acute, if you will, it was an acute calling, <laughs> was because of the crisis that happened. In our church, as thousands of other churches across the state and across the country, at that point, we galvanized. It was devastating. We said, we've got to get down there as soon as humanly possible. We packed up the church van with water and supplies and people. We got on the floor to turnpike, and we headed down there, I mean, within a couple of days, as soon as we could get on the road. So we started going down. So I know people saw this on TV, but if you were not there, it is hard to even describe what this was like. So we were going down for a turnpike, the church van, everybody's chattering, you know, we're excited because we're gonna go help people. And we were very excited to help people. I mean, it was a devastating thing, but we thought we're gonna do some good. We're gonna get down there, we're gonna help people. But after we're going down the turnpike, the closer we get to Homestead, we start seeing buildings, high rises, literally sheared in half because there are a lot of tornadoes associated with Hurricane Andrew. And it was like a child's diorama. The building was cut in half and you could still see the furniture was still in its place. The pictures were still on the wall. It was the most bizarre, wasn't it? It was, it was bizarre how that happened. So we keep getting further south, and then there are no buildings, and there are no trees, and there are no birds. There's nothing. Rumble. So we get to Homestead. We find this little church that's going to be our home base, and it was damaged. It was very damaged, but it was still standing. So we get there, and we start unloading. Everybody jumps on the back and flatbeds, and we start going into the neighborhoods. Well, the neighborhoods, quite honestly. There's no neighbor. I mean, there is just piles of rubble. So we're literally going down roads with our water and our supplies. And I say to the people with me, there is no way there's anybody. There could not possibly be anybody in here. Look at this place. There's no one here. I know there isn't. As soon as they heard the truck, 
men, women, and children coming out of the rubble. I will never forget that as long as I live. Never. That was really heartbreaking, and it was heart-changing to see that happening in Miami, Florida. And I recognize I can make a difference. I mean, I am making a difference. And when it's a life and death, I mean, I think a lot of people through this past year with COVID also might experience this type of calling yeah. through things that they've had to do through COVID or have experienced through a crisis. Mm. I, think, I think a lot of people are gonna come out of this changed and I think a lot of people are going to find ways to help change the world because of what they've experienced through this horrible, horrible last year. Yeah, I, I believe the same and I certainly hope that that is true. Can I ask you to share, because I know you, you know this because you spoke on our stage, one of the things that we always ask is, what is a really big challenge that you've overcome? Because I think, you know, even as I kind of put myself in the shoes of someone listening, I can hear somebody who's been really successful at mm -hmm. making a really impactful difference in the world, right? And who did it because she felt a calling, which is an incredible story. But also, I imagine you've had quite a few challenges that you've had to overcome as you have uh, been walking that path. So can you share maybe one or two that really stand out for you? I think a challenge initially the initial challenge was really just make, making that decision that I was going to give up my income, mm -hmm. which was a pretty good income. I was in sales and marketing and I made a good amount of money to be willing to change my lifestyle and get my husband to go along with that because I was pregnant at the time. So that was a challenge. I mean, that was, you know, what we used to call a paradigm shift, you know, can I live differently? Do I have to have the big house and the really nice cars and all that stuff? Do I, do I have to have that? Because up until that point, that was really my focus. You know, how much money can I make and how can I climb the corporate ladder? And again, that is fine and great. That was, I love that. You know, I love doing that. <laughs> but giving that up, that was a huge challenge. That was a challenge to do that. So you, when you make a decision like that, that you're going to change your career choice, um, if that's what you're doing, and it doesn't have to be to go into social work. I mean, a lot of people are in the midst of, I don't want to do this anymore, but there's something I love and I really want to do it. That is a challenge. And of course, if you're married, or you have a significant other, it doesn't just impact you, it impacts you know, your family unit. And so that's a huge challenge for people making any kind of career change where they're not going to make as much money initially and they recognize they have to make sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly attest to that with uh, She is Fierce. That was my own experience mm -hmm. where I had come from a, a international TV network and suddenly said to my husband, but I really care about this thing. Now we have mm -hmm. two small children. I should do yeah. this thing that doesn't make any money right now. And <laughs> you and I are actually a lot alike, Kelly. <laughs> yes, I can relate to your story. <laughs> Although I, I aspire to make the, the difference that you're making. So I'll, I'll keep calling you for advice. 
Can I ask, you know, what, what keeps you motivated? So as you said, you've gone back, you've been called back four times. You are working in all of these different areas. What keeps you motivated to show up every day and bring that same energy and keep saying yes, even when, you know, you're, you might have, okay, all of a sudden there's a global pandemic. Now all of your priorities have to shift. What is that uh, underlying motivation for you? The underlying motivation is, and I've told you this before, in every decision that I make and we make as an organization is what is in the best interest of the person sitting out on the bench. Mm-hmm. And I say that because we have benches sitting around our campus. What is in the best interest of the person sitting on the bench? And if someone comes to us and there's a service gap and homeless people need something and they're not getting it, then I have a hard time saying no if I know I can get to yes. Yeah. But you have to. You can't just say yes and then not be able to back it up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to have the ability to say yes, but to build an organization where everyone's motivated to say yes, because it's not about us, mm-hmm. not about us. And that's really what I say. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the homeless population, they get a lot of bum raps and they, you know, a lot of people are afraid of homeless people or they don't want to see them or they don't want them around. And there's, a you know, that sort of thing. And so a lot of times if I'm speaking in public, I mean, I get pushback, but I'm there to advocate for the homeless person. It's not about me. And I always have to recognize that this isn't personal. So I have to be willing to stand up and fight for that person that doesn't have a voice. That's what I do. I, and if I have to speak truth to power, I don't mind, I'm going to do it because it's not about me. And that's really, is really the way that we really need to make decisions in our organization. Mm. I love that. And I don't know if this is perfectly related, but what that makes me think of is an experience that I have with, I shared with you earlier, I have a nine-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. So they're just at that age where they notice absolutely everything and ask questions about absolute, I think in the last couple of days I've been asked, what is hell? Are women allowed to get married? Is it the law? And there was another terrible one, something about September 11th. That's been in the last maybe three days. Those are the kinds of questions I get asked right now. So (laughs) as you can imagine, uh, when we have seen um, homeless people on the streets in the town that we live in, they ask questions. And I am, both convicted and also unsure, right? What are the correct answers? Because you want them to be safe, right? You just talked about, don't go up to a stranger, regardless Mm -hmm. of if they're homeless. But then you also want them to have empathy and you want them to learn how to engage with people who are different from themselves and actually believe in doing what is right. So what do you, what is your advice? I, this is not a planned question, but it, I hope it's a good, it would be helpful for me, certainly, and other moms. Mm-hmm. What is your advice to mothers in particular, but people who have children or are caring for children and trying to cultivate a positive relationship with that, that whole situation? Mm-hmm. 
it, that is a that's complicated. Mm. Um, but I will say this: homeless people feel invisible, and they don't feel like human beings because people will not even look them in the face and say hello, good morning, how are you? So minimally, I would say I would teach my children don't be afraid of looking a homeless person in the face and saying good morning, speaking to them like you would any other person on the street and treating them with respect. But I would say, don't treat them like pariah. Don't treat homeless people like pariahs because they're human beings and they deserve the same respect any human being deserves. But I also would recommend, you know, that you don't just give money to someone. So that's really how I look at it. If you want to help homeless people, then you help the organizations that are helping homeless people and you give money to those organizations or volunteer at those organizations, but don't treat homeless people like they don't exist. Treat mm. them with respect. I love that advice. And I think, you know, you're, you're really answering my question about children, but that's good advice for everybody and all ages. And sometimes yeah. I think as a mom, and I, I shared this with someone yesterday, I think sometimes, you know, children naturally do the thing that is the right thing, right? Yeah. So they are more more likely to do the, do the thing and see the person. And I yes. love that if you, if we all behaved a little bit more like them. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, my last question to you, before we kind of wrap our conversation with this audio Davina exercise, which I'll, I'll walk us through is just um, a simple question. And that is, well, it's a big question, but it's a simple <laughs> statement. And that is, you know, when do you feel like you are living most on purpose? Is there, you know, either something in your work or just in your life that makes you feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm on the right track and I'm, and I'm living with purpose? I really feel that way. I'm fortunate to be able to feel that way any day I'm on our campus. Hmm. Any day I'm on our campus and I walk across campus and I interact with the people that we are serving, that's when I know we're on, I am on the right track. Not necessarily in meetings at City Hall and all that. I mean, yeah, I'm on the right track there because you have to be. But really feeling that sense of I'm on the right track is seeing the people that we're serving and knowing that if we weren't there, they may not eat that day. No one's going to give them behavioral health services. So that's how I know I'm on the right track. That is so much of who you are as a person too, is, is yourself in your personal life and with your children and now your grandchildren. So I love, um, I love that example too. So thank you. First of all, I will share the story that stands out for me from your talk and also from our conversation here. Although you have a, you have a lot of different good stories, but the one that of course stands out the most for me is your story of when you were first convicted or when you first felt some sense of calling. And that is when Hurricane Andrew hit in Miami. Um, it's actually a really personal story for me because I lived in Miami and we moved out of Miami. I was still a kid, but we moved out of Miami the year that Andrew hit. And so my, and our neighborhood, and you actually mentioned it in your talk, was Kendall, which was hit. And so I, we actually lived in Texas when um, Hurricane Andrew hit. So we were worried about our family, we were, or our friends that all lived down there. And I remember as a child, not really fully understanding it, right? And having friends who 
whose homes had been destroyed or friends whose homes had been damaged and seeing it through the lens of a child. So then, you know, as, as an adult listening to your story, I can imagine, um, or I, I try to put myself in your shoes as somebody who went down there. So can I ask you, is there anything in particular about that story that you haven't shared or that you um, really, that really stands out for you as the most impactful part of that story? When I think about that time, two things stand out. The first one, which I do tell in the story, is when we get on the flatbed truck and start going into the first neighborhood, that is really not a neighborhood at all, but piles of rubble. And thinking no one could possibly be living in here. They, where would they? And then people were streaming out of the rubble. I will never forget that ever, as long as I live. And then the second thing is, you know, we continued to go down. That happened in August. We were still down there working in December. And we did a Christmas event for the migrant farm worker children. And I remember specifically because I had a little boy at the time, my first child, he was about three or four, and my husband played Santa Claus. And so we went down with the gifts and all of that. And, I, and I'll never forget that day either giving Christmas gifts to these migrant farm worker children who were so thrilled to get a toy, one toy and one gift. And then I thought about my son's Christmas. He was only three at the time, but all the toys that he was getting. And this child is so excited just to get one little inexpensive toy. Yeah. And so that was also really impactful is to see how grateful people are who don't have a lot that also really stands out for me, that whole thought around gratefulness and what it means to be grateful. Mm -hmm. And so if things and money, that is not what creates happiness. And that whole experience down there just really solidified that idea to yeah. me. I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that kind of extension to that story. And so the next part of it is just this question, and it's for both of us to answer, and that is how the story has touched you. So I, I realize that you have shared that over the course of this conversation, but I want to ask you, I, and I'll share how it's touched me, but I would also love to hear if there's anything in particular that you want to share about how that story has touched you. You know, you actually just talked about and kind of alluded to something that really stands out for me in our conversation and in listening to you and even just being a passive observer to everything that, that you are doing and the Soulsbacher Center is doing. And one of the things that stands out for me is that oftentimes when I have heard stories from people in our community about uh, going into service or you know uh, running a nonprofit or doing something that is really kind of the next level on my, you know, many people do engage in service, but to kind of do it at a higher level and to have that be your calling as you talk about. And I am very kind of interested and touched by the fact that your story does not, doesn't really have that, right? Your story is, I just saw the need. I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but I saw <laughs> the need and I felt called and compelled to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of conversation around privilege. Uh, we've you know, I've been a part of a lot of different conversations around privilege. And I love the idea of thinking of privilege differently and thinking about when you have that privilege, what can you 
do to take advantage of it, right? So how can you take advantage of the privilege you have to actually do something that mm-hmm. matters and make an impact? So I, I really um, admire that about your story. And I think that that's something that I hope our listeners will kind of tune into and think about, you know, what is the privilege that I carry around? And it, it calls me to do that as well. What do I carry around and how can I engage in the world differently and take advantage of that? Is there a way that that story has touched you that you want to kind of elaborate on? You have seasons in your life. And at the point in time where I made that shift, it was a certain season in my, in my life. And I'm at a different season in my life now, at a different season. I'm looking at privilege now differently than I have ever thought of it in the past. And I've always tried to use my influence and we would call it influence. How can I use my influence? I am privileged. I have been privileged. I've led a charmed life. No two ways about it. And so I feel so grateful for that. So when you're looking at all the inequities, the systemic inequities, and those are buzzwords, but they're real. Yeah, they're basically something important. Those are real people and they're real numbers. Mm -hmm. And those numbers, uh, whether it's health inequity, the criminal justice system, I think we need to level the playing field. And that's what we try to do at Soulsbacker by giving people job training and education, making sure they have an early learning center where they can take their kids so that they can work in an after-school program and a pediatric clinic. We try to level the playing field and that's all that people want. They want a fair and equitable playing field. And so when I look at my life and my privilege and my charmed, really, it's been a charmed life, I just feel I, whatever I can do, uh, I need to try to do, and I need to recognize that it's real. And so now we're really looking at things more through that lens of how we can get to the root of what the problem is around poverty and racism and help level that playing field for people. So they have a chance, a fighting chance. Yeah. Well, I am grateful to you for sharing that because I think First of all, I agree with you 100%. And I also think that he, you know, hearing the perspective of somebody who's in it every day is different from hearing news pundits or hearing conversation when you're at a party between friends. Being able to, to just hear a perspective of somebody who actually lives it is very different, right? And that's why, that's why our whole She Is Fierce speaker series and all of that exists because yep. we often believe that we know someone else's experience when we don't really have any idea what that's like. Yeah. So I'm grateful. And then just our last question in our little audio Divina exercise is what is that story that you shared or this conversation calling you to do in your life? And I'll tell you what it's calling me to do. And there's a whole lot of answers. And that was even <laughs> before we got into our, uh, our interview, even just after listening back and And I already, of course, had the memory of your talk in my head and have thought of you over the course of the last few years as I've made different decisions. And um, and so one of the things that it's calling me to do is something that I have already started to do, but you're kind of convicting me and calling me more to that. And that is um, to use the platform that we have, right? So to use the platform that I worked really hard to build and that came out of something 
that was really, I think, as you said, you know, I don't know if I would have framed it that way, but really did feel like a calling to mm -hmm. kind of connect and to elevate mm -hmm. women's stories. And one of the things over the last six years that I have been doing this that has happened, which is wonderful, is that there's so much more out there for women now. And one of the truths about that is that it's fantastic. And then another truth is that a lot of it is very surface level content or surface level connection. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I know we have the ability to do is to go to a deeper level and talk about the things that, you know, we as women always have in the back of our minds, like, what am I doing here? And how am I going to do more? Or how do I, how can I be of service? Or how can I be a better mother or, or professional? And so just exploring that on a, a greater level. So that has called me to do that. Your story and listening to your story certainly calls me to think more about how we can put into practice that deeper level a bit more even than we have to this point. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad to hear that. It makes yes, me <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> well, is there anything that you want to share about, you know, about this your story or this story that it's calling you to do today or in your life right now? You know, my husband, he wants to retire. He's ready for retirement. And I always say, I will never retire. <laughs> I, I really I don't feel like I'm ever going to retire. I might not always be the CEO of Sulzbecker. And I, I feel called for this and I do not ever think I will not have calling for this, is that I will continue to fight. Um, we're in the process of looking at a second village right now for men. And that is what I'm really, really, really laser focused on trying to make that happen um, to give the men a large dignified place where they can have permanent housing and a lot of other opportunities. But you know, sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get tired. And this past year, I think, has made everybody in their own way tired. Mm. You know, it has zapped, sapped a lot of energy. People feel a little burnout. And I feel, and I have felt that, but I really feel myself being reinvigorated at this point in time and realizing there's still more I can do. I mean, yes, I'm gonna be 62 in, in a couple of months, but I'm not done. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should ever be done. I think throughout our life, you know, you can make a difference in the world, whether it's on a large scale or a small scale. I think that one thing, as I said in my talk, is that we're here to help other people. Mm -hmm. And I and I feel like no matter what your age is or what your situation is in life, you can help somebody. And even if it's just saying good morning and how are you today to a homeless person on the street to make them feel like a human being, you can do something today. And I'm going to keep doing something. And that's what I'm going to do, no matter how burnout, you know, <laughs> we all might have felt this past year. The world is going to